Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. So my name is Bobby, just in case you don't know, and this is session number three, True Intimacy, Love versus Lust. If you want to listen to the previous podcast, you can just go to our church website, which is commonwealthchurch.com forward slash um, podcasts. So before I do anything, I'm just going to kick off with some prayer. So Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that you are here. You're here in your fullness. You're here in your goodness. You're here in all of your freedom, all of your kindness, all of your acceptance, all of your brilliance. You are here in all of your loving just embrace. And we just say yes to all of that. So just let your heart be revealed. And I I do thank you, God, for every single person that's here. Like, yeah, they're not here by their own kind of design. They're here because this is a heavenly moment. And we just invite you in the center of that moment yeah, we don't want to do this without you. That would just be stupid, God. So, yeah, we say welcome to you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I definitely feel that um, today's session is probably like the most important session out of all of them, out of the entire um, six-session program. And I feel this because of something that God said to me in December. Because even though like empowering purity has always been like my heart's kind of cry. And even when I first got saved um, in 2004, I kind of was so passionate about where God had taken me out of. Like this lifestyle of, you know, drug abuse and sleeping around and alcohol and all of that. You know, I was, I guess, manipulative. You know, I I had such low self-esteem. I was depressed. If I wasn't high, I was depressed. All of that stuff. And so when I came into the freedom of God, I was so passionate about the darkness that I'd come out of. So passionate about being free from that darkness. So about nine months after I got um, saved, I remember being invited to a church in South London to share my testimony and like minister on purity. And it was amazing. It was such a good session. You know, like I really felt God moving. And even though I was quite a new believer, I was really excited about this message of purity. And then I did not teach or preach this message again for 10 years. And it was crazy. And so my entire walk with God up until last year, I have had this message inside of me and it's been dormant, even though it's, it's completely my heart's cry. It's still been dormant. And I, to be quite honest, God didn't really open the door for this message to be preached. And at the back of my mind, somewhere in my heart, I'd be like, surely God, you don't take people out of darkness that radically for that to stay a secret. Like there's no way you're going to do that without using it for your glory. Yet still, other than one-to-ones and, you know, maybe sharing my testimony in, in the youth groups or whatever, my testimony where God had brought me and this whole message about purity still remained very dormant. And then 
About three years ago, I went on this course called Authentic Lives. And by this time now, I knew that I was operating in loads of different, like, multifaceted giftings and anointings. And so during this actual course, what happens is you, through prayer and through just quiet time and talking and all of this amazing stuff, you discover what your core value, what your life's purpose um, actually is. And mine was empowering purity. And even though it had been dormant, and even though I had all these other giftings that, you know, could have um, been my core message, it was still empowering purity. And even then, I was like, God, are you ever going to use this message in my life? Like, I feel like it's just there, and I don't know what you're going to do with it. But then last year, I believe by God's design, I ended up sharing a sermon on empowering purity at my church. And then that was the backdrop for these six sessions. Just before the first session started in January, God spoke clearly to my heart and he said that 10 years ago when you started sharing about empowering purity, you only had an understanding of where you had come from. You only had an understanding of the ugliness of where you had come from. And you you believed that the reason I had brought you out of it was because of holiness. And so you would have told my church to be pure because of holiness. And most of my church is telling my people to be pure because of holiness. But I actually delivered you from lust for love. And now that you've spent the last 10 years cultivating a secret place relationship with me, only now are you qualified and only now can I trust you with the hearts of my people to let them know that as good as holiness is and as much as we desire it, holiness can only come out of the secret place. Holiness can only actually flow from a posture of love. And that's why I believe today is so crucial because this is his heart. He takes us out of bondage. He takes us out of darkness in order to bring us into love. He said this clearly when he spoke to Moses when the Israelites were being delivered from Egypt. God said to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, he said, um, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God was actually saying to Moses, tell the Egyptians that I delivered you from slavery to bring you to myself. The Egyptians thought that they had been delivered in order to be consecrated, in order to be holy. But in actual fact, God's cry was that he wanted to deliver them from bondage so that he could bring them into an intimate relationship with him, where they knew him in Yada intimacy. Moses knew this. Moses wanted to know God. So in Exodus 33, 13, he says to God, teach me your ways so that I may know you. Moses wasn't satisfied with just being holy. For Moses, he had to know God. And for all of us, that is God's invitation for all of us to actually know him. In John 17, 3, it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what we've been called for, to know God, 
That's what we've been created for. That's what we're going to do for all of eternity. We're actually going to know him. And for anyone who doesn't quite know what that term know is, it's a word that um, the Hebrew word for that is yada. So yada has different definition. Well, it has one definition, but different variations in terms of you can know someone, you can know of someone, you can know someone in knowledge. But then the deepest form of knowing someone is sex within covenant sex. So that's the deepest way that you can actually know someone in sexual intimacy. And similarly, God calls for us to yada him and to go into our deepest parts and for us to know God in his deepest form, in who he is and to be transparent with him and to enjoy that intimacy where there's no holes barred, where we are fully known because we are made in the image of a relational God. We cannot be like the Israelites who came out of slavery and instead of coming into presence, they stayed in the wilderness. We can't be like that. There are so many people that settle for holiness and holiness is not enough. That's why you've got all these Christians that are, you know, doing all the rituals. You know, they're they're going to church, they're reading the Bible, they're doing all of that. But inside of them, there's a part of them that's dead. It's not alive. You know, they're not really enjoying life. You know, they know I'm doing the right thing. You know, I'm going to church and I'm not in sin anymore. And, you know, this should be making me feel good. But this just makes me feel correct. But it doesn't make me feel alive. Because what happens is when we come out of bondage and when we break away from lust, there's a vacuum. And it's only when we fill that vacuum with love that we truly feel alive. It's the same as when we fast. If we fast and we're, you know, refraining from food, but we're not feeding ourselves with the spirit of God, and we're not feeding ourselves with the word, and we're not feeding ourselves with worship, then actually that, uh, you know, detaching yourself from food has been pointless because you haven't been fed. And so as much as we can walk away from lust, and as much as we can detach ourselves from the wrong kind of intimacy, it's only when we enter into the right kind of intimacy that we truly come alive. And so this basically is the heart of these sessions, that we would leave here completely resolved in our heart to detach ourselves from every kind of lust that has some kind of enslaving power in our lives and that we would enter into a lifestyle of love. So in today's session, we're going to look at love and its counterfeit lust and we are going to look at what sexual um, intimacy looks like. Now, in order for us to understand love in a sexual context, we have to understand agape love, which is God's love. And in order for us to understand sexual lust, we have to understand what the spirit of lust is. And in order for us to actually understand sexual intimacy, we have to understand spiritual intimacy. So our foundation scripture for today, I'm going to go through loads of scriptures and I'm going to be talking for ages. And I feel that this is absolutely what God wants. So if you have to go, then by all means, please do feel free to leave. But I hope you stay until the very end and actually really... um, journey with me on this. So, um, Ephesians 5, 1 to 10. Um, I'm reading from the, from the Amplified. Therefore, be imitators of God, 
Copy him and follow his example as well-beloved children imitate their father. And walk in love, esteeming and delighting in one another as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a slain offering and sacrifice to God for you so that it became a sweet fragrance. But immorality, sexual vice, and all impurity of lustful, rich, wasteful living or greediness must not even be named among you, as is fitting and proper among saints, God's consecrated consecrated people. Let there be no filthiness, obscenity, indecency, nor foolish and sinful, silly and corrupt talk, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting or becoming, but instead voice your thankfulness to God. For be sure of this, that no person practicing sexual vice or impurity in thought or in life, or one who is covetous, who has lustful desire for the property of others, and is greedy for gain, for he in effect is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God uh, kingdom of Christ and of God let no one delude and deceive you with empty excuses and groundless arguments for these sins for through these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of rebellion and disobedience so do not associate or be sharers with them for once you were darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light lead the lives of those native born to the light for the fruit the effect the product of the light or the spirit consists in every form of kindly goodness, uprightness of heart and trueness of life. And try to learn in your experience what is pleasing to the Lord. Let your lives be constant proofs of what is most acceptable to him. So Paul refers to both love and lust in um, these uh, this passage. Um, Ephesians 5.1 in the message says this, watch what God does and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. So Paul begins to talk about love in this scripture. The first two passages are him talking about love. Some of us think that we can learn how to love without getting intimate with God. That's what we do. It's impossible because God is love. None of us have the capacity to love our spouses, our children, our friends, the lost, our colleagues, ourselves. None of us have the capacity to love without entering into an intimate learning experience with God. And anyone that tries to do that will end up learning, oh, sorry, loving in their own strength. And we've all tried to do that. We've all tried to do that and we've failed. And the more we hang around with Jesus, the more that we realize that he gives us a capacity to love greater than our own ability to love. But what happens is in the area of sexual love, people will still accept that, okay, God is the author of love, so I need to hang out with God to learn how to love. But when it comes to sexual love, people still keep God away from that. They somehow 
for whatever reason, experiences that they've had, the way the church has explained things, you know, the way that the world has uh, demonstrated sex or rather the distortion of sex. All those things sometimes make people separate God's love from sexual love. But God is the author of every kind of love. So if we want to truly know how to um, love someone sexually, love our spouse sexually, even for that, you have to hang out with God. Because sexual love, along with every kind of love, is all about giving. And the scripture, you know, begins by telling us that God gave himself for us. That's what giving is all about. If we want to know what love is, we just need to look at the cross. If we want to know what love is, we just need to fix our eyes on God's extravagant gift that he gave himself for us through his son when we were still sinners. We didn't deserve it. We didn't qualify for it. We weren't, you know, so worthy that that he would do that. He did it when we were still sinners and where six billion, seven billion, I don't know, billions and billions of people are not even going to accept what he did for us and he still did it. That's extravagant love. That is love. That sacrificial love where you don't think of yourself, you think of somebody else. And so when it comes to sexual love, ultimately, that's, that's the thinking that we need to actually take on board. That even sexual love is about extravagant giving. Even sexual love is about not holding back. Jesus didn't hold back. He was completely transparent on that cross. He did not think of his own needs. He didn't think of his own life. He didn't think of his own preferences. So that's extravagant love. And so if we truly want to know how to love extravagantly, we need to look at Jesus's example. So what would this extravagant selfless love look like in a relationship? Now, I'm not going to span what extravagant love would look like, you know, in general. I'm just going to talk about um, sex and relationships, basically. So if we loved the way Jesus loves, and if we didn't hold anything back, and if we were extravagant, we esteemed someone else greater than ourselves, then when it comes to, like, dating, what that extravagant love may look like is that there's complete sexual purity. Because in order for you to truly love someone then you're not going to engage in lust. Then you're actually going to value their body. And a lot of people, when they start dating together, especially when you're in the world, that's the time where lust most kicks in. You know, where you meet someone and you're most attracted to them and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, you are so hot, I just want to be with you. And even for Christians, that's the time when there's most opportunity for temptation to kick in because your, your body and your hormones and, you know, the attraction that you have for somebody else, that all kicks in, the chemicals kick in, and it's most likely that you're actually going to give in to lust at that time. But extravagant love walks in a spirit of self-control. Extravagant love puts its desires down, puts its needs down, puts its sex drive down, puts its own passions down and its own urges down and says that because I love you and because I value you and because I value your reputation and I value your honor before the Lord and your honor before yourself, I am not actually going to touch you. That's what extravagant extravagant love looks like when you're dating. It also looks like treating the person that you're dating as a brother or a sister, 
not as a boyfriend or a girlfriend, not as a potential husband or wife. Because when we think of that person that we're dating as a potential husband or wife, we begin to have certain obligations put on them. Because we think, well, you know, we're kind of exclusive and, you know, you're potentially going to be my husband or my wife, so I expect this from you. Or I, I want to give you this. But actually, if you treat them as a brother or a sister, you honor them the same way you would honor your own brother or sister or the same way that you would honor yourself. And so you're not going to want to tempt them. If you're a girl and you're dating a guy, you're not going to want to wear things that could turn that person on. As much as you want them to find you attractive, extravagant love, real love, agape, sacrificial love says that I'm going to walk in self-control and I don't want you to stumble. In the world, every, you know trick is used when you're first dating, you know, like to do whatever you can in order to get that person to like you more. But what extravagant love does, it waits. It doesn't rush. You know, it trusts the Lord. It doesn't fear. It doesn't try and, you know, um, manipulate. It doesn't try and get anything in its own strength. It trusts God. Another thing I think that, you know, when two people are dating, it's like they want to be together all the time so that they you know, they, they end up, like I know when I was going out with guys, I, my curfew was about, I don't know, nine o'clock. And I was, still wasn't home at 11 o'clock certain times, you know, 11, 11.30 at night. And none of us at any point said, you know, oh, you better go home now. I don't want you to get in trouble with your parents. Because when you're dating, you just want to be together. So you're just like, oh, can you stay a bit longer? Oh, please, please stay a bit longer. But what extravagant love does says that, you know what? I want you to honor your reputation. I want you to honor the vow that you've made to your parents. I want you to honor your commitments. And I am going to help you do that. So even though I want to be with you, even though I adore you and I fancy you, but I want the best for you. And so I'm going to say, let's stop what we're doing now and let's go home or you go home. What extravagant love in dating does says that after about 10 o'clock, we're not going to be together anymore because in case you stumble or I stumble, extravagant love puts boundaries in place. It doesn't just let things happen. doesn't just let hormones kick in. It actually thinks ahead and is intentional. My thing is when I think of like um, the whole dating process, I think to myself, imagine if Christians were the kind of people who, when they actually date, that in the world, when someone dates and they break up, it's been a complete waste of money. It's been a complete waste of time. There's so much heartache there. You know, there's um, quite a lot of hostility there. But imagine if as Christians, we so, even during the dating process, we treated one another with such holiness and such love and extravagant sacrificial love for one another that when two people as Christians broke up, that one another had so blessed each other's lives and that they'd actually been part of helping the other person become who they were created to be. So instead of taking from that person, because that's what happens in dating in the world. When you date in the world, lust takes. So when two people break up, they feel robbed. They feel like, I've just given you everything I was and I'm going to walk away empty, less than what I was before. But in the kingdom, imagine when we finish dating someone, Imagine the person thinks, man, I have received from you. 
I have totally had your love poured into me that my life has been so enriched because I dated you. And then imagine if two people do stay together and they date in that capacity, imagine the foundation that that would have for their marriage where they truly learned how to love one another and they didn't let lust get in. And what love also looks like is laying sex down for something that happens after marriage. Love also looks like wanting to know that person, know their dreams, know their passions, know the things that they're praying about, the things that are important to them, and not just letting your you know, hormones get ahead of you. Um, when I watched this um, uh, YouTube video of a pastor called Devon Franklin, I don't know if people have heard of him, but he's an American Hollywood producer and he's also a pastor. And he is married to um, a woman called uh, Megan Good. And she's also a Hollywood star. And what really touched me about their story is that they're now married. And um, they were very vocal about the fact that before they got married, they were celibate. And so unheard of in Hollywood. And so because they're both also very attractive and they're very influential. So obviously they now have this big following. But what was amazing is that He was already in celibacy when she came along. So he'd been celibate for quite some time. He had decided, it got to a certain point where he was just like, you know, I'm not going to have sex before marriage and I'm just going to walk in purity. And he was doing really well at that. For her, on the other hand, she kept messing up. She constantly kept finding herself um, in relationships because her thing was, um, I'm not going to instigate it, but if it happens, it happens when it came to sex before marriage. She wasn't militant about it. Then she got to a stage in her walk with the Lord where she was like, what the heck am I doing? Like, I want God's best for me. So then she decided sex was completely off the table. And so she said to the Lord that I'm going to wait for you to send me someone who really um, is, is worth me waiting for. So them two met each other and they started dating. And they definitely fancied each other strongly. And she found it really difficult to um, like resist temptation. But he was so strong in the Lord that he was able to maintain that celibacy in their relationship. It's crucial that as individuals, that we as individuals are strong in the Lord when it comes to walking in holiness. Because when we get into relationships, if both of you are weak or both of you are battling with some kind of lust, it's going to be the blind leading the blind. But what we need is we need individuals that are strong in the Lord, that already walk in sacrificial love, already are aware that whoever I make contact with, whoever I'm dating, that person, I'm going to help them to walk in holiness before the Lord. I'm going to help their walk with the Lord. I'm not going to allow them to stumble on my behalf. Some people sometimes think if they're dealing with like lust issues, they think that when they start uh, dating, it will be fine. It's not. It's just be transferred to another person. And then you've got two people. And you've got, you know, two people that are now battling with temptation because that issue still hasn't been dealt with. So I would really encourage us, if we're single, then we have to get these things put right first before you even start dating. Please don't think that you're doing this because you're lonely. Because when you start dating, that issue will still be there, except you'll be... You might not be lonely anymore, but you'll still be in bondage. So we have to be people that are walking in sacrificial love and walking in freedom. And we're strong in the Lord even before we start dating. 
What sacrificial love may then look like when we're talking about marital sex? When it comes to dating, we do everything to, um, you know, preserve the person who we're dating, to preserve their purity. But when we're married, we do what we can to allow the other person's pleasure. So you become someone who dies to your own desires and lets your spouse's pleasure and what's best for them, that's what your giving is all about when it comes to marital sex. So you become sacrificial in laying down your desires, your passions, the way you like to do it, how frequently you want to do it, what you want to see done. You lay all that down for your spouse. But if you're both walking in sacrificial love, your spouse lays their passions and desires down for you. So both of you are happy. You know, and it, if you really do have a sacrificial love mentality, even when it comes to sexual love, because somehow we think that we can be sacrificially loving in every other area, but when it comes to sexual love, the brakes go on. Because it's such an area of bondage, such an area of bondage that though you want to love your spouse with every inch of your being, though you want to give them everything in every other area, in the bedroom, that's when all your fears kick in, that's where all your reservations and insecurities kick in, that's where the, you know, the, the, um, the tiredness and the weariness kicks in, that's the least place where you are likely to want to be sacrificial to your spouse. But imagine extravagant love in the bedroom. Imagine that. Imagine if, as Christians, we were having sex that was so sacrificial, we would be the happiest people on earth. Isn't it? Like, every married couple would have a kick in their steps. But... I know the couples that I see that are sexually active. Like, I know. You know? And I know those that are not. Because there's, like, just a kick that comes in your step when you're alive in that area, right? And so, if we give one another sacrificially, if we give to one another sacrificially in that area, it would mean having sex when you don't want to. It would mean maybe doing things in the bedroom that perhaps you find a little bit uncomfortable, they don't, you know, bring out the best in you, but if your spouse wants to do that, then why not? And I'm not saying that, you know, do something that is, um, uh, like, degrading. I'm not saying do something that's going to really, really make you uncomfortable. But what I'm saying is sexual, like, union in marriage should be a safe environment. You should be able to explore things. You should together be able to say that, hey, do you know what? I had a thought. And I was thinking that maybe, you know, we could do a little bit of da-da. And then the person should be able to say, okay, darling, for you, I will. You know, really, that's kind of like the transparent talking that we should be having. But instead what happens, we're just like, did you? No, okay, okay, fine. I'll try again in another month, you know. But imagine if we truly were sacrificially giving in the bedroom, then you would actually, there's no room for insecurities and you become risk takers. So many times, like if you're, if you're, you know, in um, a marital relationship and your wife doesn't like to have sex, but you keep, you know, trying to bring up the subject and then she just maybe isn't comfortable for whatever reason and then closes the subject. And then you don't ask her again because she might reject you. Imagine though, if we really became risk takers, And we didn't let fear of rejection be an issue. And we 
you know, really ministered to our spouse about their beauty, about how amazing they are, about how much you really, really do love them. Because taking risk in love doesn't just look like having sex. You know, taking risks in love is like calling them up at some kind of weird hour, leaving them like a post-it note, you know, wearing something saucy, you know, like taking risks isn't just about the sex act. And if we truly were spouses that were willing to take a risk without fear of rejection, and we just went for it, and we didn't care about, you know, what the response might be, and we didn't hold back in the bedroom, and we actually stripped ourselves of all of our vulnerabilities and all of our insecurities, and we actually um, chose to love sacrificially in the bedroom. Imagine how that would be. But we can't do that without Jesus. You can't do that. You know, you can have a lot of hang-ups in the bedroom and you're like, what's the, you know, I wish I was more comfortable in the bedroom. I wish I would, I I wish I could do that with my husband. I wish I could do that with my wife, but I just feel this or I feel that about myself. The only one that can heal us in that area is Jesus. You know, that's why we really, really do need him because sex goes beyond, you know, whether you just feel like doing it. Sex goes beyond duty. Sex goes beyond emotion because love goes beyond all of those things. You know, love is beyond just doing something because it's convenient or just having sex because, you know, I really do want to have children with you and my time is running out, so we better have sex. You know, it goes beyond all of that stuff. And you know what comes to mind? That term, making love. You know, that term's been around for centuries. I don't even know who actually created that. But when we as Christians have sex... We do make love because having sex is doing the actual act, but making love is actually manifesting and creating love where you actually take on an attitude. You take on behavior. You do things intentionally to manifest love. So if a couple is tired, a conversation could be something like, you know, I am really feeling tired. I had a rough day at the office and I know you've been with the kids all day, but hey, let's make love love. Let's create it. Let's manifest it out of the weariness, out of the tiredness. Let's actually creatively foster love. And that could look like anything. So I think as Christians, we actually have got the capacity to make love and not just have sex. For the world, this is very, very um, difficult because without God, you do simply just end up walking in lust. And even if you think it's love, it's a limited love. So it ends up being a filio love, which is a love that is about, um, you know, appreciation for someone or friendship. Or if you, um, it's a sentimental love, you know, it's if someone does something nice for you, it's a fondness, it's that type of love. Or we have eros love, which is a sexual love based on desire and based on um, passion and sexual attraction. So people outside of God don't know how to truly make love because their love is based on emotions. Their love is based on a feeling that runs out. Their love is based on lust. Only with God can you truly um, love beyond when the love runs out. And so what normally happens is for people in the world, they actually end up mistaking um, infatuation or lust for love. And it's not that people choose to enter into lust. You're not going to get someone that says, oh, do you know what? I really want to fall in lust. That doesn't happen, does it? Because everyone's looking for love. You know, even when someone, you know, I guess 
apart from the fact that if someone is having a casual relationship and they're not looking for any commitment and they do just want sex, then, of course, you are walking in lust. But most people are looking for love. Most people, when they enter into a relationship or when they walk down the aisle, they truly believe that this thing's going to last forever. They want the butterflies to continue forevermore. They want to believe that after spending 20 grand on a wedding, that definitely this thing is going to last. Like, it's not that anyone says, you know what, I'm going to choose to love wrong. But without God, we don't have the capacity to love right. Whatever our plans might be, whatever, you know, our intentions might be, however much we might mean those vows when we're saying them, without agape love, we don't have the capacity to actually love someone once the feeling runs out. Once the feeling runs out and once the chemicals, you know, wear away and once the infatuation and um, the sexual desire runs out, then we've got nothing left to actually give. Whereas when we know God, even when those things run out, we still press on and we kick in to the action of love. So when the emotion of love runs out, then we actually, we have an understanding of how to actually do love, not just feel love, but how to actually do love. But in the world without God, they don't actually have this understanding. They only know about Lust, because lust is the very spirit of the world. And like we talked about in session one, lust is a, a need that simply can't be satisfied. This is why, you know, in the world, people continue to lust after more and more and more and more because you simply cannot satisfy lust. It continues just by its nature. It continues to intensify. Lust is meeting a natural and legal need in an illicit way. So when people are looking for intimacy, that need is not wrong. That's a God-given need that we all have. But it's what we resort to in order to satisfy our need. That's when lust actually kicks in. And in the world, people, you know, have this mentality that freedom is having everything that you want. But we know that true freedom is actually exercising self-control. That's actually true freedom. But the nature of the world is to have what you want, when you want, with whoever you want, anytime. Because in the world, the, actual, the, the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes, that is the way of the world. And what ends up happening is when we get serious about Christianity, so whether you become a Christian from the world or whether you have grown up in the church, when you get serious about Christianity, unless we actually break away from the spirit of the world, we still end up having lust issues in our life. And I actually think it's harder sometimes for people that have grown up in the church because if you're someone like me who had a radical encounter and then you step out of the world, then you can tell pretty much clear as day what's darkness and what's light. But when you're actually brought up in the church and you almost kind of live like a safe, you know, reasonably respectable life and you're not doing anything crazy, it's very difficult. That subtle influence of the world that's almost there parallel with your Christianity is very difficult to actually discern that the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life could actually have an influence in your life without you even knowing. 
So as Christians, when we get serious about Christianity and about Jesus breaking away from the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life has to actually be an intentional thing that we do. To be in the world and not of this world doesn't happen automatically. It's a decision we have to make. So in um, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, it says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers It offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, the pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the, this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. This term, the world, is so crucial. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure if, if everyone understands this word. And this entire, like the word world has different um, kind of definitions. The original word, the Greek word is cosmos. And it can mean like to decorate and, you know, ordain, um, like uh, put ornaments on your face. And that's where we get the word cosmetics from. But it can also, it also refers to the earth. It also refers to like the round shape of the earth. That's where we get the word, um, the cosmos from. And it also refers to um, the inhabitants of the earth. But then there's a term, which is what this scripture actually refers to when it comes to the word world. So in this context of this scripture, it's the sum total of human life in the ordered world considered apart from, alienated from, and hostile to God, and of the earthly things which seduce from God. This is what we might call the world system. It involves the world's values, pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations. And it's governed by Satan. And so this very spirit of the world that we sometimes engage in, when we feed our flesh, because the flesh and the spirit, they're opposite. There is no, you know, mixing them. They are from, they are like opposing to one another. When we feed our flesh from a place of lust, that is not of the Father. It can't be. Because the flesh and the spirit can't walk together hand in hand. So when we engage in the things of the flesh, we actually end up engaging in the spirit of the world. Even though we don't even think it's anything to do with the world. We think it's my flesh. You know, okay, so I've got this addiction. Hey, I'm not hurting anyone. But actually, we're engaging with a belief system that is governed by Satan. And our actions and our addictions or our propensity for that thing aligns us with Satan. Does that mean that you don't, you know, um, enjoy life? No. You know, you still enjoy God's creation. We still go into every single sphere of society. We're salt and light. We go everywhere, you know. Does it mean you don't have a social life? Of course not. You have a social life. You know, you can um, enjoy fashion. You can enjoy eating out. You can enjoy going on holiday. All these things are not the issue. But when we feed ourselves with these things, when we find our satisfaction in these things, then we are engaging with this anti-God mentality. 
which is actually a worldwide fondness for sin and self, which causes men and women to stumble into wickedness. And when we engage with lust, that is what we're engaging with, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, that's what's actually happening. So there's lots of uh, Christian authors who've actually written about, um, you know, the spirit of the world. And um, this one particular book that I read when I was first a Christian, um, which was called Break Away from the Spirit of the World, it talks about um, the world, this cosmos, is actually a system built up to satisfy one's pleasure and make one happy without God. And it talks about this notion, this concept of cosmos, where it actually really began. So it's when Cain, it's what these writers talk about, when Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, at that time everything was in the wilderness. There was no city. So he built the first city. And, you know, the arts came along and, you know, religions kicked in and they started believing in astrology. You know, there was sciences that happened. So then in Genesis 10 and 11, we read about the Tower of Babel. So I believe it was um, Cain's great-grandson, Nimrod. He was the one who orchestrated the building of the Tower of Babel. And it says in, in um, Genesis 10, it says that he, went, he was before the Lord. Like almost many scholars trans, translate it as he was brazen before the Lord, against the Lord. And so it's believed that this anti-God rebellion, which we already know it was a rebellion against God, because the Bible tells us um, that they were united against God and now they could do anything because they were united. But this anti-God rebellion... Um, They've written about it to say that it was a distrust after the flood. So they didn't believe God's promise. They didn't believe the rainbow. They didn't believe the covenant where God said, I'm never going to, you know, send a flood again um, and destroy the earth like this. So they built a tower that could reach up to the heavens, that could withstand any kind of flood. And so this world system, this belief system was created that said, you know what? Forget you, God. Like, we'll handle this. We got this covered. Didn't get very far. But, so although this isn't concrete and this isn't said, but imagine if although God destroyed the world, imagine if the world still remained in the hearts of Noah's sons. Because when the world was recreated again, or rather when Noah came out with his sons, the world continued, the world system continued and is very much thriving today. So you know that saying when it says, I looked for the church and I found it in the world, I looked for the world and I found it in the church. You know, it's like, the world isn't a geographical location. It's a mindset. It's, it's where your heart is. Which is why, you know, we, we, we're called to go into the dark places in the highways and the byways. But you can be in church and still be of the world. So being of the world is actually a mentality. So John, Apostle John, in this scripture, isn't saying, you know, um, don't be in the world. But he's saying, be called out from the world. And that's what ecclesia means. That's what the church actually means. The church, ecclesia, is called out ones. It means that we are a people, Christ's assembly of called out ones, separated from the things of the flesh. So when we engage with lust, we end up not being the church. Because we're of the world. 
But Ecclesia, the church, you and me, we're all called to come out of that system of lust and be set apart. And unless we do that, we will end up indulging in some form of lust. And we will end up committing spiritual adultery because you can't love two gods. And love for the world displaces love for the Father. Whereas love for the Father, love for God, removes any kind of love of the world. So if you are someone who's not hungry for the things of God, then you have to ask yourself, where is my love? What is it that I've been loving? Because you worship the thing that you love. And Christ does not want us to worship the things of the world. It says that, um, you know, in James 4.4, 4, it says there's no middle ground. Even friendship with the world is hostility toward God. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can still have friendships with the world. And I've been there. You know, I, I shared in um, the first session that because of the radical way in which I was um, delivered and saved... Um, one of the first things that God told me was to stop listening to secular music. And as I shared last time, um, the, the night that I had that incubus attack, while it was actually happening, God showed me that it was the spirit of the world that was actually raping me. So I was being molested by this incubus, which has sex with women. Um, and... It was while I was wide awake and God literally said that this is the spirit of the world. And I saw this spirit of the world that had been my friend. You know, as a Christian, when I'd lived a double life, it was like, oh, but you know, this is where I'm finding this. This is fun. Christianity is dry, you know, but like the world didn't seem like my enemy. The world seemed like my friend because it understood what I liked. It understood the buzz. It understood what it meant to have fun. I had believed the deception of the beauty of the world when really it's so ugly. And that night when I was being raped by that spirit, I saw it for its vile, relentless hatred for me. And I saw how evil the spirit of the world is. It doesn't matter what it gets masqueraded as. It doesn't matter how glamorous it looks. It doesn't matter what, you know, how friendly it might try and be with you. At its root, it is ugly. It is hatred. And it does not love you. And so... After that time when I got radically saved, because of that, I knew I wasn't going to go back to the world. There was no way I was going to go back to the world. But there'd be certain times when I would, you know, I might go out with my friends or, you know, things might happen where I would find myself thinking something's harmless because, I, I, you know, I knew I was consecrated, I was set apart, those things couldn't touch me anymore. But I would underestimate, once again, I would underestimate the enemy. And so back when I first became a Christian, even when I was living a double life as a Christian, God had already um, told me to stop listening to music. And at the time, I just knew that I just didn't really feel peace when I listened to secular music. And so I stopped. It was easy for me to do because I got a real sense of peace when I stopped listening to worldly music. Over the years, um, I generally didn't really go back to it. But then God showed me, a short while ago, God showed me what the actual power of that music had actually done to my life. And he took me back to when I was 15. And at this time, I had so many guys 
around me, like so many guys chasing me, it was ridiculous. And I wasn't interested in a single one. It didn't matter if I thought they were fit. It didn't matter if, you know, yeah, if I, if I fancied them. None of it mattered. I was not interested in guys for several reasons. One, that because I'm from an Asian background, we're not meant to have boyfriends. The other thing was I was attending church. So I knew that I, you know, I, I knew that I kind of didn't want to get involved with guys at all. And then, um, despite the attention, it was easy for me to say no. And no matter what happened, I stood my ground. Just before my 16th birthday, this guy came along, and he was about seven years older than me. He was a DJ, and he fell in love with me, and I thought he was amazing. I adored him, but there was no way I was going to say yes to him. And even though he proposed to me, you know, all of that stuff, you know, I mean, who gets married at 16? No one gets married at 16. But, you know, it was like, it was still there. And I was still adamant that I didn't want any kind of a relationship with him. But he, where he was a DJ, he gave me all these mixtapes. You know, this is when tapes were around, like during the war. <laughs> during the war? Yeah. So anyway, so I put my little mixtape in. And um, I was listening to all this R&B and all this soul and occasionally this... Um, hip-hop, within three months, I was sexually active. Within three months, everything about me changed. My entire belief system, my love and my honor and my um, loyalty towards my mum went down the pan. Like, I had my first boyfriend, like all of it. I completely, all my ideologies, everything that I believed, I, I was a completely different person. And God showed me that. He showed me that that's the power of worldly music. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's like that for everybody. It was like that for me. And I know people that are graced, you know, to be able to still listen to worldly music and still operate fully in sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, be able to lead worship. You know, they can, be, they can remain this consecrated, holy life and still, you know, listen to worldly music. But it's not like that for me. Not at all. Because every single time, and I'm not saying worldly music isn't great. Like, let's be serious. Like, there's some banging tunes out there. Isn't there? Like, sometimes if I'm, like, walking past and I hear a tune, I just, like, start buffing my head and I just think, what am I doing? What am I doing? You know, because it's such good music. But this is why we have to rise up as the church. We have to start walking in the fullness of our giftings because the creator created music. The creator is the one where all these skills and all these amazing creative beats come from. It's only when we actually rise up that we're going to be able to take back what the enemy has stolen. In the meanwhile, we find ourselves still, you know, inclining our ear towards worldly music. Now, for me, if I do that, in a blink of an eye, an incubus will come back and rape me. Because the Lord has already shown me that... When I mess with the spirit of the world, you allow the enemy legal right to come into your life. I'm not saying that's the case for everybody, but I actually believe that if we were truly to remove the veil of the spirit, that would be the case for everybody. You know, it's just because of the way that I've had to find out. And now what I'm quite sensitive to, I obviously can see uh, a side of the world, of the, uh, the spirit of the world that perhaps other people aren't exposed to, but it's still there. Yeah. It just depends how familiar you are with that spirit, how familiar and how kind of subtle that spirit might be in your life. So you may not be able to detect it, but with me, with me 
I have to stay all the way over there and the spirit of the world has to be all the way over there. But even if I didn't have a grace, even if I did have a grace over my life, even if when I listen to worldly music or watch worldly films, even if I didn't have an incubus come and rape me, I still won't want to do it. And the reason I wouldn't want to do it is because of 1 John 3.1. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world, the evil world system, does not know us because it did not know him. The world system didn't know Jesus. It rejected Jesus. The world system has rejected us. It doesn't want to know us. Therefore, I don't want a world system that has rejected Jesus. I don't want that world system telling me what love is. I don't want that world system influencing the way that I think. I don't care how good the music is. I don't care how glamorous the fashion industry might be. I don't care how you know incredible the Hollywood films might be. That world system rejected Jesus and it's rejected me and I do not want to feed on it. Again, I'm not saying that you're not, you know, going into the world. I'm not saying that you're not part of what's happening. But we can't let this world system that is governed by Satan define what love is for us. This world system says it's okay to have sex before marriage. This world system glorifies adultery. Like how many stories do you see in Hollywood where, you know, the husband and wife aren't maybe getting on, so then a third person comes on the scene and, you know, the, all of a sudden there's this romance, this, this urge, there's this passion that these two people have for one another, even though one of them is actually married. But Hollywood glamorizes lust. Hollywood glamorizes illicit sin and makes it look like it's okay to people as long as people are in love. But we already know the world's idea of being in love isn't agape love. It's lust. It's infatuation. And so when we, you know, fix our sights on Hollywood or we let those things kind of penetrate the way that we think, then subconsciously we let that kind of, you know, mindset influence what love actually looks like. But we can't allow, you know, adultery being glorified. It's not okay for two people to live together before they're married. It's really not okay. You know, I remember watching a program, like, I don't even know why I watched this stupid program, but, you know, um, Don't Tell the Bride. Yeah. So sometimes I watch that, and the minute, what will happen, the minute I switch it on, like, while they're talking about their story, if their story is crazy, I obviously switch it off. But there was this one story where she was like, they were about to get married and they were asking how they got together. And they said, oh, we were just, you know, we were just roommates. And then, you know, one night I was in the bath and then he came in and then, you know, we've been together ever since. And I was thinking, and you're basing a marriage on that. You know, but that's what the world does. It actually takes attraction, it takes lust, and it actually then bases an entire marriage on it that then falls apart because it was actually built up on lust. And so 
I'm very careful about allowing those kind of storylines or those kinds of mindsets to influence me because I want my understanding of what love is to come from God and not from Hollywood and not from the music videos and not from all of that stuff. And that's why, again, we have to go into the world and we have to be, you know, market leaders and we have to be industry leaders and we have to go and produce and create so that we define what love is. So that we actually end up influencing the world. So there are people that would actually recognize, well, hold on, that doesn't look like love to me. That looks like love to me. Like when I listen to this track, I don't feel love. But when I listen to this track, I feel love. Or when I watch that, or I watch, you know, look at that art, or I go and visit that exhibition, or, or I, you know, follow this person on Instagram, I just see love oozing out of their words. And we have to so penetrate this world with the love of God so that people begin to discern a difference between what is actually love and what is actually lust. And ultimately, if we let the lusts of the world influence us, then we end up giving Satan legal right to come into our lives. That's the bottom line. And that's why Ephesians um, 5.2 goes on to say, but immorality, sexual vice, and all impurity of lustful, rich, wasteful living or greediness must not even be named among you as is fitting and proper among saints, God's consecrated people. The message says, don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity, filthy practices or bullying greed. So we cannot let the ways of the world become our idol. No way. But Paul in this passage, goes on to explain one of the ways in which we can refrain from lust. He actually goes on to say, um, let there be no filthiness, obscenity, indecency, nor foolish and sinful, silly and corrupt talk, nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting or becoming, but instead voice your thankfulness to God. So he's like saying, because lust is coveting someone that you don't, something you don't have. He's saying be thankful for what you've got. If you haven't got it, it's because God doesn't want you to have it right now. You know, if you're, if you're single and you really, really want to be married, and so because you want to be married, you end up finding yourself engaging in maybe pornography or you find yourself maybe fantasizing or really, really yearning and thirsting after being married, be thankful that God is in charge of the timing of your life. Like, be thankful that he's got the right person set apart for you. Be thankful for your singleness. Be thankful that this is a time where you can really get to know Jesus and get to know yourself and establish such a firm, solid walk with the Lord. Be thankful. If you don't have, um, you know, if, you're, if you actually think that, you know, I, I want lots more clothes or I want to get this car, I want to get that car because I don't have X, Y, or Z, be thankful that you're not homeless. Like, be thankful that you've got a roof over your head. Be thankful that you've got a job. If, if your husband or wife doesn't want to have sex once a month, like, be thankful it's not once a year. Then it goes on to say, be sure, for be sure of this, that no person practicing sexual vice or impurity in thought or in life, or one who is covetous, who has lustful desire for the property of others and is greedy for gain, for he, in effect, is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The NLT puts the last bit like this. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of the world. Paul then goes on to say, if you're not going to be thankful, if you're not going to appreciate what you've got, then if you're going to continue to engage in lust, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Sorry. Like the wrath of God will actually come upon you. And people don't really like to hear that because sometimes half the reason that we engage in lust is because we take the grace of God very, very lightly. And we think that we can get away with it. Or, 
you know, I, I know that it's the grace that, you know, and it's the wooing of God that actually leads us, leads us into repentance. Like, I understand that. I absolutely understand that. But I know that there's some cases where the consequences of your sin will catch up with you. And I know that because it happened to me. So three years of living a double life, and it was, I was a wretch. Like, I was a wreck and a wretch, you know? I was both. I was so broken, but I didn't stop my sin. And I needed that wake-up call. Like, I actually needed that night where that attack happened to me. I needed that. And God, in his goodness and in his mercy, allowed that to happen. Otherwise, I don't think I would have inherited the kingdom of God. And I believe you can go to, he- you can go to heaven and still not inherit the kingdom of God. Because kingdom is about what we walk in on earth. So I would have been that struggling, weak, you know, kind of uh, Christian But actually, God was like, you know what, let me give you a wake-up call, Bobby. Let me allow what that devil's going to do to you. I'm going to allow that to happen because then you'll actually fix up and then you will start living the way I've called you to live. So Paul's saying here, if you're not going to be thankful, okay, if you're not going to take that posture and refrain from lust, then let me just warn you, like you might end up facing some consequences that are going to mash you up. And sometimes that's the only thing that's actually going to snap us out of lust. And in those cases, even though God doesn't want that to happen to us, God will still allow those things because we're not learning through his grace. And we're not learning through his kindness and we're resisting him. So God's like, okay, my hands are tied. And that's why when this incubus comes back and assaults me, God's hands are tied. Because God's like, well, Bobby, I already told you about the music. Don't listen to it. And so if I go out, and it's, it's a matter of the heart, because I can walk into a shop, and there, you know, all the music's going on, it's like a rave, but it still doesn't, because my heart's in the right place, it makes no difference. I could go into a club. If my heart is in the right place, it doesn't make a difference. But if in my heart, my motive is to um, seek my pleasure from something in the world, then... That's what's going to get me in trouble. And so God's like, well, if you're going to engage with the world, my hands are tied. Legally, I can't do anything. And when we engage in lust, we actually legally put ourselves in Satan's domain. And God's not able, legally, God's not able to do anything to preserve us. But then what I love the most is what Paul then goes on to say. He says, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Lead the lives of those native born to the light. For the fruit, the effect, the product of the light or the spirit consists in every form of kindly goodness, upright of heart and trueness of life. And try to learn in your experience what is pleasing to the Lord. Let your lives be constant proofs of what is most acceptable to him. So Paul's like, be thankful. Let that refrain you from Um, you know, restrain you from lust. If you're not going to be thankful, be careful because the wrath of of God might come on you. But then Paul's like, but actually, I don't want you to live in fear. Just remember who you are. Remember that you're not darkness anymore. He doesn't even say you're not of the darkness anymore. He says you used to be darkness. Like we all used to be darkness. We all thought lust was okay. In some form or another, we allowed that darkness to be our everyday life. But Paul's saying that 
You're not darkness anymore. You are light. Be like children of light. Don't engage in lust anymore. Don't engage in fantasizing. Don't engage in pornography. Don't engage in covering something that you can't have. Don't engage in, you know, uh, fulfilling your sex drive before it's time. Don't engage in looking at women as sex objects. Don't engage in, you know, um, uh, sleeping together before you're married or living together before you're married or gossip or slander. Don't engage in these things because that's not you anymore. And I just want to declare, if there's anyone here, even this morning, if you engaged in any of that stuff, that's not you anymore. You are a child of light. We are children of light. We used to be darkness, but now we are light. So we live and walk in love and we display the fruits of love and we choose love in our marriages and we choose love in our relationships and with our children in every sphere of our existence, we choose love. And it's literally saying for the fruit of light and of the spirit, that's produces kindly goodness. It produces upright of heart. It produces trueness of life. All of these things are a byproduct of being children of light. And then when it tells us again to try and learn in your experience what is pleasing to the Lord. I love how we go back full circle to where we started at the beginning of the chapter, which is learn how to love from God. And here it is telling us to Learn how to love from God. Like it's reminding us that remember, you are a person that loves. You are a lover. You are not a taker. People that walk in lust, they are takers. We are givers. We are called to love sacrificially. And it says, hang out with Jesus, learn in your experience, you know, have this experiential understanding of what love looks like by hanging out with Jesus. So my last scripture before I go on is um, 1 John, um, just 1 John, really. (laughs) And we know, understand, recognize, are conscious of By observation and by experience and believe, adhere to and put faith in and rely on the love God cherishes for us. God is love and he who dwells and continues in love dwells and continues in God and God dwells and continues in him. In this union and communion with him, love is brought to completion and attains perfection with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment with assurance and boldness to face him, because as he is, so are we in this world, inhabitants of the world. So what this scripture is reminding us is that when we commune with Jesus and when we actually hang out with Jesus and learn how to love with him, we actually can stand firm And have this confidence that we're not like the world, but we're like he was in the world. And in this um, instance, the word world actually means inhabitants of the earth. So God is saying that when you love like me and you love me and we are in communion with one another and we enjoy this yada intimacy together, then you learn how to love not as the world loves, but you learn how to love how I loved in the world. 
And so this is what's crucial for all of us. If we want to live and learn how to love, whether that's marital love, any kind of relational love, it's only going to happen in one place, and that's in the secret place with God. Because like I've said again and again and again, as the bride of Christ, we are called into spiritual intimacy with Jesus. We're called into that yada intimacy with him. We are his covenant bride. Just like a husband and a wife consummate their marriage with the act of sex just like that like when they consummate their marriage and the hymen is broken and they enter into a blood covenant with one another that's what happened with us when jesus died on the cross we entered into a blood covenant with him he is now our husband and what's incredible like abby actually sent me this fantastic clip of td jakes um uh preaching about sexual intimacy and worship actually he was preaching about worship and he was talking about how um, the word him is derived from the same word as hymen so this wall that a woman has in her womb this wall of flesh that actually is the gateway to her womb hymns do exactly the same thing in worship with the lord that sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife does so when we engage in worship when we bring a song of praise and we actually enter into his courts with thanksgiving enter into his courts with praise and we come with a hymn and we come with a song we actually have the capacity in worship to press past that wall of flesh and enter into the womb which is the secret place enter into the secret place of his presence and what happens in the womb is where things are conceived and so in this secret place is where hope is conceived it's where creativity and joy and and um, solutions and wisdom and peace and love is in that secret place of his womb of his presence that we actually begin to give birth to all those things that keep us alive and flourishing and it's in that place of intimacy that our fears leave and this is the reason sometimes when we why we can't be naked before our spouse before our husband or our wife because we haven't learned how to be naked before god and until you have the boldness to be able to come into God's presence and actually stand naked before God in the secret place you will never stand naked before your spouse never it's impossible because it's only in that place of secret place intimacy where you understand that he loves us so unconditionally he loves us without reservation with our flaws with all of our you know rubbish with all of the crap that we maybe even did today with all of that stuff all of our insecurities all of our hang-ups all of our sins with all of that stuff he still says boldly come boldly come my beautiful one i only see you as flawless he sees nothing but his son jesus in us and so when we cultivate a lifestyle of intimacy we begin to see ourselves as he sees us we begin to despite the stuff despite our insecurities despite the fear we begin to boldly go into the secret place like i remember back in the day when 
I actually now was in love with Jesus and I was on fire and I was living for him and a guy came on the scene. And before I knew it, I'd actually ended up, you know, sleeping with him. This was very early on in my Christianity and I was in love with Jesus at the time. And I'm not endorsing what I did and I'm not advising anyone to do this. But every time I had sex with this guy, I wept and went straight into the presence of God. Because where else was I going to go? And what the enemy does, he causes us to stumble. He tempts us, he causes us to stumble. And then when we stumble, he condemns us. And then when he condemns us, he says, you can't go to the Father. And again, I'm not endorsing what I did. But every time I cocked up, I went straight. That's when I got this tattoo, God is love. Because every single time I went into his presence, I knew I was filthy. I knew I was sinful, but he didn't reject me. And that's when I truly understood that despite my sin and despite my stuff and despite my insecurities and my failure of rejecting him again and again and again and being unfaithful, he still said boldly, come. And I was able to, now I literally bounce into his presence. And until we learn how to be in God's presence, despite our flaws, despite all of those things, and still see ourselves as acceptable until we learn how to do that in the presence of God. You can't do that in front of another human being, in front of your spouse. And isn't that ultimately what we want with our spouses? Isn't that what we want? We want to know that when I make love with my husband or my wife, he sees me as beautiful. Despite my flaws, despite my pimples, despite my cellulite, despite the row we had, despite the row we had this morning, you know, despite me ignoring him, despite me, you know, not really um, giving him any respect or any honor. But when he looks at me, he sees me through the eyes of love. Isn't that what we want? And that we do the same to them. That despite your failure, despite the fact that I'm still annoyed with you because you haven't washed the car, you know, despite the fact that you didn't even remember it was our anniversary, you know, despite all of that stuff, I am going to make love to you and I'm going to give you all of myself and I'm not going to hold myself back and I'm going to love you like you're perfect because that's how Jesus loves me. And we have to learn how to go into that secret place. There are discoveries that are reserved just for the secret place. There is destiny reserved just for the secret place. There are, you know, like um, prophetic words and songs that are reserved just for the secret place that you and I will never discover outside of that place. And there are parts of ourselves that we will never know outside of the secret place. Who we are and how loved we are, and what we are able to do, and what we have the capacity to do, can only be found in the secret place. And whatever fear you may have, whatever some of you may have had happen to you that distorted your understanding of sex, please know that this is bigger than sex. Having yada intimacy with God is so much bigger than sex. It's everything. It's the very reason that we are on earth to actually be fully known by him. This is the place where we get healed. You know, there's so many people that can't have sex with their spouse, can't make love with their spouse because they're hurting. They're actually hurting. They're wounded. You know, they've been violated. They've been abused. It's only in the secret place that we're going to get healed. It's only in the secret place that we're actually going to find restoration. And I have to tell you, like, the secret place is the best place on earth. Like, I know I've learned more about intimacy in the secret place than I ever learned with the guys I slept around with. Because the guys I slept around with, that was Zachab, 
Remember I said in the first session, in the second session, zakab is illicit sex. It's the act of sex. Yada is covenant sex. And my only experience of yada has been with God. I don't, you know, I've only ever had zakab or I've had yada with God. And he wants that for all of us. And maybe for me, because of my background, it's easy for me to be naked before God. You know? But I'm telling you, that invitation is there for every single one of you. Like, there's life that you are not living because you are not naked before God. There's parts of yourself you never even discovered. There's places that you cannot even dare to go in your mind. There's things that you dare not even think of because you haven't engaged with God in this way. And so I'm going to extend an invitation. In a minute, I'm going to invite you to break bread if you want to. Because the same way having sex in marriage is a, um, it's a sign of re-establishing your covenant. Breaking bread is re-establishing your covenant with Jesus. And if you are someone that doesn't break bread outside of church, you have no idea of what you're missing out on. Like, we should be breaking bread by ourselves because we should be re-establishing our marriage covenant with God regularly. Like, I remember three years ago, God had me break bread three times a day for seven months. Three times a day. Like, my intimacy with Jesus went through the roof because I was re-establishing my marriage covenant with him morning, noon, and night. And it just took me to a crazy place of intimacy with him. And so I would suggest that if you don't break bread by yourselves, start doing it. Just you and Jesus actually dedicating yourself to him as his bride again and again and again. In your own time, just grab um, the elements of communion. We're not going to do it together. It's just between you and the Lord. And really, this is about like tapping into what we've all been wired for. Like we were created to know him. And there's an invitation here now for you to actually, as a sign of reestablishing your covenant with him, break bread. You know, as the girls begin to lead us into worship, like connect with him in a way where you choose to let go of your fears. If you are having problems in your um, marriage where you find yourself insecure before your spouse, where you hold back because you have fear, like actually take that before the Lord today. Like just the space behind them is just going to be open for you guys just to, you know, lie in the presence of God and just to let him minister to you in yada intimacy. If there's people here that you have actually experienced like um, abuse or even your own husband may have violated you, maybe that's a place I don't know. If couples, if you're here as a couple and you want to break bread together and you actually want to like, go to a place over there and you want to do business with God and you actually want to say that as of this moment onwards, we are inviting yada intimacy into who we are as a couple Like, I honestly believe that you can leave here different today. And I believe that God wants to break those walls down that lead into the secret place. And that there is an opportunity here for you to enter into that knowing with God so that you are always known by him. 
and that you don't do anything outside of that communion with him. So yeah, there's nothing religious here. Just do as you please. If you want prayer, if you're battling because you, you, you want intimacy with God, but you're scared, is something that, you know, is foreign to you or it creeps you out and it makes you cringe. Or you're walking in religion where you think that intimacy with God is just reading the Bible, you know, or quoting scripture. Get prayer today because we've got a beautiful prayer team who live intimacy. And so let them lay hands on you. And even, you know, the girls that are worshipping, I mean, these girls live intimacy. So in this atmosphere, like, let God write the story of your intimacy um, today. And, yeah, break bread at any time. It's between you and the Lord. So, Jesus, thank you so much. We welcome you. We welcome you. In Jesus' name, amen. there's no end to the affection. That you have for me Cause there's no end to the affection That you have for me Cause there's no end to the affection that you have for me Cause there's no end to the affection That you have for me That you have for me. Yes, there's no end to the affection that you have for me. Yes, there's no end to the that you have for me oh, oh. there's no end to the affection that you have for me it goes on it goes on it goes on You never stop loving me. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on. You never stop loving. You never stop loving. You never stop loving me. It goes on, it goes on. 
ever stop loving me? Mm. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on. Stop loving me. You never stop loving me. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just break of condemnation. If there's anyone here who thinks that what they've done disqualifies them from your presence or anything that they're involved in right now or any kind of insecurity or flaw that they have, I just break that lie. I break every spirit of condemnation. And I just thank you, God, that your beautiful grace completely arrests their heart right now and I cancel out that lie that says that everyone else might be able to boldly come but I can't I declare that you can you can in the name of Jesus there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ so we just thank you for complete boldness to be able to come into your presence, warts and all. No space, no place for condemnation. Just complete sonship in Jesus' name.
together. Yes, you see me and you know me. You know me and you love me. You love me through and through. Yes, you see me and you know me and you love me through and through. Cause I feel no shame when I'm in front of you Yes, my whole heart I let you see into Show you things nobody ever knew Cause I feel no shame when I'm in front of you Yes, my whole heart I let you see into Show you things nobody ever knew Cause I feel no shame when I'm in front of you Oh, yes, my whole heart I'll let you see into Show you things nobody ever knew Cause I feel no shame when I'm in front of you Oh, cause you see me And you know me And you love me through and through. Yes, you see me and you know me and you love me through and through. So my whole heart I'll let you see too. Show you things nobody ever knew Cause I feel no shame when I'm in front of you Go high 
So my whole heart I'll let you see into Show you things nobody ever knew Cause I feel no shame when I'm in front of you Oh, Cause where would I go from your love? I couldn't hide if I wanted to Cause everywhere I see myself going I want to be there with you So where would I go from your love? Oh, I couldn't hide if I wanted to Cause everywhere I see myself going, oh, oh, I want to be there with you. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 